0: This is episode 146 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, What's So Wrong About Diversity Statements? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am so delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today to talk to us about what I've been referring to in kind of a general term as mandatory diversity statements, and I'll ask uh, Lisa Bildy to correct me if that's not the right terminology, and I'm so grateful to find her. I've been looking for someone... To come on the show and talk about this kind of complicated topic but one that seems to be rearing its head everywhere and i just hadn't found the right person until i found lisa so i'll introduce her she's a canadian lawyer who graduated from western law school in 1993 and was called to the ontario board in 1995. she practiced as a trial lawyer for a number of years with a small litigation firm Uh, Before she left her practice to focus primarily on raising her and homeschooling her two children in 2017 she was gearing up for a return to practice when she learned of the law society of Ontario's new requirement that lawyers sign a quote uh, statement of principles unquote undertaking to promote equity diversity and inclusion in all aspects of their lives sounds kind of ominous, as a condition of practicing law. Recognizing this as an affront to freedom of conscience, belief, and expression, she led a successful campaign known as Stop SOP to elect to the Law Society a slate of lawyers who were committed to repealing this requirement. And I think we're going to get a chance to talk about that strategy, which I thought was very interesting. Lisa believes that the protection of individual rights and freedoms is essential to human flourishing, love that word, and is pleased to work with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which she joined in 2019 in jealously guarding those freedoms. So, Lisa, welcome to the
1: show. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, let's set the stage for listeners, because many of them may not be aware about what's going on. And as I say, I've been using this kind of catch-all term about mandatory diversity statements. And you actually were involved with stopping what is was called the statement of principles. Are these kind of the same? How are they differ? Tell me what terms I should be using.
1: Well, I think that that term is just as good as any. I mean, the statement of principles was sort of a unique term to the law society. It's not the one that would I've heard elsewhere. Um, but yes, mandatory uh, di- diversity statements. Uh, EDI stands for. Equality or equity uh, is interchangeable, mm. although they mean different things. Uh, EDI is Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Statements, and, and you, hear, you hear that shortened to EDI statements, or, or change the acronym around, and it's DI for, the, for those who aren't. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> ominous. <laughs> for those who aren't fans of it, usually you hear that one, but uh, yeah, we all, we, I think we're all talking about pretty much the same thing. Okay, and so uh,
0: what do they say, and what's your objection to them?
1: Well, maybe I'll just paint a little bit more of a picture of why I became a little bit of alarmed about it first, and then maybe, sure. maybe that'll help us understand um, the context. So so I had stepped away from practicing law for a while and uh, totally changed my focus, although I, I was doing legal work on a contract basis over the years from time to time, but, but by and large, I was out of it. In the last Few years before I came back to practice, starting maybe about twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, I started noti- I started noticing just a sort of change in the, in the general culture, perhaps the beginnings of the culture war, or at least I mean I think it had been ongoing for some time. But it was when I became alert- alerted to it, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I started seeing a lot of patterns in society. A lot of a lot of these things that were concerning that were cropping up in different areas, and I started piecing things together a little bit and uh, um, started to recognize very much a push towards conformity of thought Mm -hmm. in so many aspects of our society and punishment of those who ran afoul of that. And I was starting to recognize some, I think, unhealthy psychological um, behaviors to that too, that people were becoming afraid to speak up about things. Mm -hmm. Social media was taking off around this time too. So I, I think that had sort of heightened the whole thing and perhaps made people wander into echo chambers a little bit more and so on. But in any event, I I had been paying attention. I had been monitoring this for a number of years. And so, and having stepped out of the practice, I, uh, when I started thinking about going back to it, having not come up with anything better to do with the rest of my career, um, (laughs) besides going back to practicing law, I I didn't think of other things, but none of them, I don't know. You have a certain skill set sometimes as a lawyer, and uh, it doesn't always translate well to other things. Mm -hmm. Um, In any event, I, uh, I, I was uh, having been away from it, was was coming back, and uh, maybe therefore noticed things a little bit more acutely because I wasn't sort of the frog in the boiling, gradually boiling water. Right. So, 2017, uh, the Law Society of Ontario. Now, this is a an arm of the state. Effectively, this is a statutorily created regulatory body. There's one in each province. I don't know if the states have something exactly alike, but uh, essentially, this is this is the body that. Regulates the legal profession lawyers and now paralegals as well Um, you know, make sure that we're not defrauding the public that we're competent that um, you know, we uh, We're we're keeping up on top of the latest things with our continuing education that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's that's the purpose of it Um, Mm -hmm. and and to ensure access to justice and, and you know, just different sort of general principles Um, But it is not the function of the Law Society to govern the thinking of lawyers and and the consciences of lawyers. So in 2017 um, a notice came out. Most of us just ignore most emails from the Law Society. I mean lawyers are busy people. Uh, Those are those are not the things you get to typically. But I'm starting to pay attention because I, I wanted to get up to speed on what was happening in the profession a bit more. And I saw this and I thought, wow, the the Law Society is now making it a new rule that we as lawyers are going to have to subscribe to, well, there there was an initiative that they had um, brought in that had 13 recommendations, and one of them was a a mandatory statement of principles acknowledging your obligation as a lawyer to promote um, equality, diversity, and inclusion. And you were to treat this as a personal valuing of these principles.
0: Yeah, Um, dang.
1: Right. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> and I thought, it, yeah. wow. And, uh, I, I thought, okay, well, first of all, I, it, it was brought in the, uh, the other part of the background of this is, and this was before I was starting to pay attention. Um, uh, but there had been a, um, a study done by the law society or parts, a small working group within it, uh, that had been, I think, largely taken over by some, some, some activists. And, uh, Uh, A report had been commissioned, which concluded that there was systemic racism in the legal profession. A a report similarly had been done about 15 years earlier and had found no such thing. But in any event, this one did. And uh, as I started to learn more as time went on, I discovered that uh, some recommendations were made by this uh, group that had had done the study and they had been passed unanimously by the governing body of the Law Society, which was, populated by lawyers and, and paralegals and uh, through who are elected to those positions <clears throat> and they had passed this unanimously but I later learned that there was a great deal of bullying and and so on that went on behind the scenes to make that happen mm-hmm. so I wasn't aware of all of that background at the time I just I just became aware of this new requirement so there were a number of other things that were going to be happening um, in, tr- in terms of you know starting to to make sure that everybody was completing Surveys on you know their what what their identities were, um, uh, gathering all this this information. Law firms were going to have to start you know monitoring whether they had uh, people who who checked certain boxes, whether it was an um, uh, ethnic group, race, um, sexuality, okay. that kind of thing, right? So and because the, because the goal, the stated goal of this program was to ensure that there was representation in every level of every law firm and the judicial system generally, in proportion to the comparable demographics in the province. So quotas, basically, is what it sounds like. But in order to kind of moderate the thinking of lawyers, the first step was to get the statement of principle sign where we all had to agree that we were going to promote these concepts of equality, diversity, and inclusion. So I, at first I thought I was a little unsettled by that. And I, um, uh, there was a law professor who spoke out against it in a, a newspaper article he was the first one that I saw speaking about it. Um, his name is Professor Bruce Party, and he likened the Law Society to, the, uh, to North Korea. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I also want to say that I was not, uh, I'm not a, an agitator. I'm not somebody who normally kind of goes against the flow. At least I hadn't been but I really felt bothered by this. I thought, you know, I see where this is going. I understand the context in which this has arisen. I looked at all the reports. I, I, I examined the, the statistics in the underlying report very, very carefully before I mm-hmm. spoke about it, just to see, is there evidence to support what they're saying that the profession is systemically racist? And anyway, uh, that's another side issue. Um, just focusing alone on the, on, the, on the diversity statement, I was I was unsettled by that because even if you even if you agree right. with whatever principles they're exactly. putting to you mm-hmm. why, why should your you know your professional regulator tell you what your principles are i mean your principles are should be those things that you individually arrive at after you know a lifetime of reflection and and the values you know that you're, you grow up with or that you adopt as you as you go through life right it shouldn't be something that somebody just hands to you and says these are your principles now sign this. they're not principles; they're they're an edict that you have to follow, right? Mm-hmm. So on that alone, I was I was opposed to it. It didn't matter what the words were; it could have been democracy and motherhood, and you know, I still put I would have had problems with it. Uh, I was a little encouraged that someone else thought the same way as I did by seeing that newspaper article. So I uh, I went I, I sent out an email to a bunch of lawyer contacts I still had. And uh, one wrote back to me and said, yeah, I'm concerned about that too. And he was a trustee of the local bar association. So mm. um, he said, let's have a meeting and, and talk about it. Now, n- nobody even appreciated that the thing had already been passed. It was already a rule. I mean, we, we were all just kind of asleep at the, at the switch, kind of sure. not, not noticing this being swept in. So it, was, it wasn't like we could stop it. We couldn't uh, at that point really, we thought do anything about it, but, but uh, we wanted to discuss the implications. And Mm so um, I went to that meeting, and I stood up and I I spoke much more forthrightly than I normally would on this kind of a thing, because it is a very politically sensitive issue. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, certainly, I think as we are all on social media and on Facebook and so on, we become more conscious, perhaps, of the opinions that we hold and how favorable they are. And and sometimes we, we guard our speech as a result of that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually, uh, to be perfectly honest, yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank you, social media. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. Uh, I mean, it's not like, you know, we, we, we sort of did that in society anyway. I mean, you, you know, sure. I was growing up, yeah. we used to be careful not to talk about religion and politics. Those were the kind of ground rules that we had when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't know how my parents voted and, uh, you know, nobody talked about that sort of stuff. It was just, it was private and you didn't let that taint your relationships in However, you, you know, dealt with people in society and downtown, when you're running into people, you don't know what their politics are, but now all of a sudden with social media, that's all we know. And it's in our faces all the time. (laughs) Right. Uh, Okay. So carrying on, uh, speaking up at this meeting actually encouraged some other people as well to speak up. And and many, many of us then, it was probably about five or six of us that met afterwards in a boardroom and talked about what could we do about this? We weren't sure where it was going to go at that point. Uh, we had a number of meetings and, and we thought, well, let's try and alert the profession to this because people don't know what's going on. We we only kind of stumbled into it ourselves. So we put a website up and the SOP, Statement of Principles, um, we, we went with a silly little name, Stop SOP.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, Stop SOP.
1: <laughs> it took on a life of its own throughout the uh, the rest of the story, which I'll, I'll I'll let it unfold, I guess. You can stop me if you want. But it, I, I do think that the story is a big part of what people are going to want to hear because there's a... There, there was a method to this that was successful
0: mm-hmm.
1: if, if you're interested in pushing back on these uh, so we tried to alert the profession through um, some informative essays on our site that we several several of us had written to say where these initiatives were coming from what is it, what does it really mean what are they asking of us is it what is what it appears on the face and we concluded that no it was not and that and that in fact our law society had been hijacked by some some activists who did not have the best interests of the profession at heart. That was our our conclusion on that. Uh So we did a lot of analysis about that. And we uh, thinking that nobody really wants to stick their head up above the herd and have it lobbed off. So we thought, well, let's put up a web page, like uh, part of our our site, uh, but a, a page where people could sign up and say that they too are opposed to this. And we allowed people to actually be anonymous at first, which probably a third of the people who who said they were in support wanted to be anonymous. But the numbers overall were not great. Um, I think by the end of it, we had about 350 people who actually showed their name. There are 52,000 lawyers in the province. So 350 is a drop in the bucket. Okay. And I will also say that as we kind of went forward with this, one of the considerations in my mind was I don't have a lot at stake. I was coming back to the profession. My husband's a lawyer and he was, you know, paying the bills. I didn't have staff. I didn't have, at that time, uh, having been out of it for a number of years, I didn't have a professional reputation at that point. I was concerned about, I mean, I was, because I, I could, if it had all gone south, I could have done something else with my life at that point. Uh huh. I didn't have staff that would have been in trouble if, it, or lost their jobs if I had to, if I got ran out of town or, or whatever. So I, I didn't have as much at stake as, as perhaps some people did. So even, even then, though, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners will understand, because I don't think that most of us have escaped this now, um, we are we're all kind of growing in awareness of what's going on, and uh, it's impacting many workplaces now, and certainly certainly uh, universities and, and so on. Are, yeah. It's been going on for, for quite a while, but but the, the ordinary workplace is experiencing it now, too, so I, I know everybody knows what I'm talking about. And I myself was hesitant when I put my name on that list uh, because I thought, Oof, do I really want to stick my head out, uh, out there uh, and, yeah. and, and be one of those people? Yeah. But I did. And I'm glad I did. But it didn't change anything. And you know, we put some ads in some pub- legal publications and said, you know, uh, this is what's going on. Let's resist. You know, don't sign your statement of principles. If we all push back on this. What are they going to do? Like, just don't don't check the box on your annual report to say that you have completed the required statement of principles. And and by the way, the law society had said, look, we'll give you guys a couple of years to kind of get re-educated, as it were, and then we'll start imposing the penalties. So
0: it's like return for regrooving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Let's get you. Let's give you a little time to get your head on straight the way we think it should be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Get your thinking straight. And then, if you're not going to go with the program, then there'll be um, progressive discipline. They said. Wow. Now they they did walk it back as we got further into this dispute, and then said, "Well, okay, there won't be any consequences." But at the outset, it was frightening actually mm. to think I have to sign this, or I'm going to lose my license to practice law. And nobody likes to hear from the law society, right? Like, you know, you don't you don't want to get that little uh, white letter. Oh. Personal and confidential from the law society that somebody's complained about you. There's always that little bit of fear with your regulator because they have the power to take away your livelihood. Mm-hmm. And and so this this was this was ominous and frightening. We, we didn't we didn't manage to convince anybody. And in fact, that very very first year, we were still kind of trying to educate people. But we learned that 97.5 or 98 percent of the profession had checked the box in their annual report to say they had complied. Yep. And I thought. Oh what do we do with that? I mean, yep. you're, you're all, this is the year. It doesn't even matter. This was the year you could have pushed back and you could have done something about it. And, and you didn't. Yeah. So that was discouraging. And I will say, I mean, I, I was very disappointed because these are lawyers, right? I mean, mm. yeah. lawyers are supposed to be trained to, first of all, be well aware of what your fundamental rights and freedoms are uh, under your constitution. I mean, we're taught that there's no excuse for not knowing that. And secondly, you know, as Shakespeare wrote years ago in Henry the Eighth, I guess it was, first we kill all the lawyers. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it wasn't because they were overbilling, it was because they were the last <laughs> <laughs> the last line of defense against tyranny. That was the context in which those lines were that line was written. Mm-hmm. But we were doing a very poor job of of fulfilling that by, by just kind of rolling over and, and letting that happen, I thought. Uh, I'm sure there was much disagreement, but as I later learned there were a lot of people who just felt quite simply felt cowed by all of this they just didn't think that yeah. they could rock the boat and uh, uh, and that's frightening to me too. So um, this was not having much success just trying to let people know what was going on. So there was going to be an election one year out for the governance of the Law Society and we decided you know what let's put together a slate of candidates to run on a position of getting rid of this statement of principles. Mm-hmm. I held a workshop, um, invited all the people who had signed our list, kind of put the word out about it. And then I put pressure on people at this meeting. I said, you know, we need to, uh, by the time everybody leaves today, I need at least 10 people who say they're going to do this. I think we maybe had nine, but it was, (laughs) it was lovely to see people. Yeah. And I say, you know what? I I didn't think I ever wanted to do this. I just kind of wanted to come and talk to like-minded people, but darn it, I'm going to, I'm going to put my name forward. Wow. We ended up with 22 lawyers and one paralegal who would go forward on this slate. Mm -hmm. So then we entered into a a very nasty campaign and uh, not by us, but uh, our opponents, Came to the conclusion that we must all be racists and bigots because we were opposed to this mandatory diversity statement.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the yeah, that's exactly the. It could be the only reason, (laughs) right? It could only be that, right? And that's the club that they come back and hit you with. But
1: they do, yeah, they do, yeah, and that is the reason why people don't want to stand up and fight it because who the heck wants to be called that? Mm-hmm. Uh, who wants to have the reputation solid in that way? Well, nobody, nobody does. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's why we're in the place that we're in today, which is because most people have just said, you know what, I'm not gonna risk it. I don't wanna, I don't wanna put my neck out there and, and uh, um, I'm just gonna just go along with the program. But that's the problem is that nobody wants to stand up to that. It's like this big progressive juggernaut and, and it's coming for you and, uh, and you better get in line and do what you're supposed to or um, your, your reputation's at stake. You know what, though? I have to say that um, having a bunch of people together as uh, sort of a team Mm -hmm. was was helpful. We weren't by ourselves. We were a group of, by the way, uh, across the political spectrum, I mean, we had people who were far left, social justice people in the sense of like, you know, I really want to help people who who need access to justice, those kinds of people, and, and all the way to conservatives and it was a broad spectrum, a, a broad coalition, but everybody came to it with their own reasons for it, for believing that this was um, fundamentally not something the law society should be requiring of people. Uh, so we, we were quite a ragtag bunch. Mostly they were sole practitioners or small firm lawyers who didn't have as much at stake and weren't feeling the pressure that uh, often happens when you're at a larger firm and everybody has to go along with the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we knew a lot of those people were counting on us too. There, so there was there was a pitched battle on Twitter. I mean, our little oh, stop, really? so, oh yes, our stop sop name became instead of just a silly little website name, it was it became a hashtag. It became a, mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, it was a community, and then it became a, a movement. Honestly,
0: mm.
1: we um, were surprised by how we were treated uh, by other professionals other lawyers online it was appalling mm. well I worked very hard to keep everybody on our side of it sort of out of the weeds don't you know don't get into mudslinging you know, that's not what we're here for we're gonna take the high ground we're we're on we're running on a principle here too and we're not going to uh, lash out at everybody or call names or play that same game which we'll just hold our heads high and carry forward and we did we did and it was uh, it was a grueling process but but uh when elections, when the election took place, it was an online ballot, um, on April 30th of 2019, the next morning, May 1st, we woke up to discover that every single one of our 22 lawyers, uh, had won, like top votes. The incumbents had been swept out. And by the way, these positions were used to be a plum position for sort of elite lawyers to kind of come and get to have, you know, run the profession and, and, uh, you know, there was a fancy wine cellar and, and uh, this was kind of like the cream of the crop, the crop that would come to be to govern the law society and get elected to these positions. So most of them lost their jobs. And here you have literally this ragtag bunch of small town lawyers and uh, good people, but not not the movers and shakers of the profession, generally speaking. Wow, that's a crazy story.
0: <laughs> yeah. that, really,
1: That's really amazing.
0: Yeah, so it that was just happened. I mean, that was just slightly over a year ago.
1: Right, so they've wow. been in their positions for a year. Now they didn't have enough. Our, our paralegal that we had on the on the slate didn't didn't win, and part of it was we also uh, I um a big part of this was that I also through the website and through the connections that we had, I had like we set up a website or uh, sorry an email and uh, a Mailchimp account so we could we could send out mailings to people, and I um along with a couple people on the team, we put together very educational emails, and we gradually. Got the profession up to speed on what was going on. Right. We started off with sort of the the most comfortable of the issues, and then I kind of you know gradually turned up the heat so that they could start to see as we sent out these weekly mailings uh, during the campaign what was what was going on. And then we sent out a brochure with a list of the names. It was very expensive. It was like forty thousand dollars, but we had collected money. I, I we took donations from you know the rank and file across the province um, sent us. Enough money that we could we could get one of these brochures with the list of who to vote for um, in the hands of every lawyer in the province. We didn't have enough money to do that with the paralegals, and so consequently, he didn't get in. But um, but clearly, our efforts had paid off. We reached enough people to, to to get these these people swept into into their new positions.
0: Yeah, I guess what's interesting to me when I read this story or a little bit about it originally, I thought, oh, it's because nobody cares. I mean, that was my suspicion or, or a question that I had, I should say that, you know, sometimes things, you know, it's like board of directors, the uh, people propose the slate. you're like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. But here,
1: it sounds like people actually knew who they were voting for.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I see. They absolutely did. Yes. Um, I have to tell you, like, uh, you know, we got a lot of, well, I was the person reading all of the emails that came in. And after we sent out mailings, to the whole profession, I mean, there were a lot of people who sent very angry um, responses. I mean, hate-filled um, mm-hmm. accused us of just the worst things, you know. That we were—I I don't know—I didn't want to say it. It was just so hateful, and you know, I—you I, start to kind of just see it for what it is after a while. Like that would have, some years ago, just—I—I I, I don't know if I could have withstood it, to be honest. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: but somehow you just you you realize that if you don't stand up against it, it's. Um, the consequences of that are are probably even greater. At least that's the point I had come to in my own mind. Uh Um, But but what kept me going too were all the emails that were just saying, thank you so much for doing this and sending us money. And, you know, and afterwards, my goodness, number of people who wrote and said that it was literally an existential issue for them. They didn't know if they continue to practice law if if we hadn't done this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you, you realize like, we were the front guard. We did sort of withstand the slings and arrows. and mm-hmm. um, But there were an awful lot of people who were behind us. And so the number of people who, as I said, like about 350 put their names out there publicly. Uh, but And again, nobody really hardly ever votes in these elections, right? Because like you said, wow. nobody cares. I so, uh, right. But, but we ended up having probably about over 5,000 people. Voting for each of our candidates. Now you don't have to vote for all of them, and so I don't know how many people in total voted, but there was a concentration of votes with our with our group. Uh huh.
0: Well, now some people had a reason to vote for someone. Because <laughs> right.
1: usually it's like who cares? I mean, it's one name over
0: another. You're like,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. So you know, you maybe know somebody and you, you check mm-hmm. the box for that one person. But but there were a lot of motivated voters who came out and voted. But you see, um, as the campaign had progressed, there was an opposition movement that developed, and there was a a group called Demand Inclusion, which set up a website themselves and had a list of all the people running for positions that were supportive of the Statement of Principles. Okay. But now they ended up with more of those people than were actually the positions. So they kind of watered, you know, that was a strategic mistake on their part. We we had a concentration of, of people you could vote for, but not, we didn't split the vote, whereas they did. So they'll be smarter next time, but they were taken aback by what we had done and also taken aback by the fact that we didn't cave to the pressure. I mean it was it was brutal I I, you know I don't know who listens to your podcast I'll keep the language clean but I could not believe some of the invectives that were hurled at us and you know the you know the blandest of them was oh you're a bunch of old white men Um, and well clearly I'm not a I'm not a man (laughs) <laughs> but, but those of us who are from minority backgrounds or were women or were young uh, were just completely dismissed as tokens. And, and, and uh, oh, yeah, I mean, we actually had um, one woman on our team who was from Hong Kong originally and a very brilliant woman who, you know, had a lot of credentials and so on. We put her forward as uh, to lead the Law Society, which was kind of a little ballsy of us because honestly, you, you don't do that when it's your first term. But, you know, we thought, what the heck. Well, it's a coup, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the hit pieces that they ran on her, which you kind of go, wait, you guys were all about diversity, you know? Here, here's the first Asian Canadian woman to run the law society, and you're going to put run hit pieces in the national newspaper on her? Uh, it was unbelievable.
0: Yeah, I think that's some of the what we discover <clears throat> in some of these cases is there is a significant amount of hypocrisy behind it, which is right. which is really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But but I want to. I want to back you up here just a sure. little bit because I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, well, hang on a minute. What's so bad about diversity and inclusion? And And I think this is a fine point that often gets lost. And it's why sometimes you get these horrible emails. I mean, some people know what they're doing, but a lot of people, I think, are sending emails and getting wound up and, and getting very emotionally involved in these issues because they don't understand the principles of freedom that are at stake. And so if I can impose on you, uh, cause I think you can say this better than I can. Can you help us understand what's wrong with these declarations of ideology
1: like this? Right, well, there's a couple of ways to um, to, to look at this. And one is is to look at the substance of what's being asked of you with those words. And I'll get to that in a second. But on the principle of, you know, having your own thoughts, I mean, this is something that I I think both the United States and Canada uh, in our constitutions have recognized our our fundamental freedoms. You have the right to your own opinions, your own own thoughts, your own beliefs. You know, your country was, uh, the United States was forged on people coming from countries where they were persecuted. You know, a lot of people, uh, and continue, uh, both of our countries, uh, people come from from horrible places, or experienced you know, religious persecution, or, or you know other uh, violations of human rights, and they come to North America thinking that they're going to be able to participate in a um, liberal democracy where individual rights and freedoms are protected. You know, I, I always like to say that when we're protecting minority rights, we're protecting the rights of the individual, and that's the smallest minority. And so when when people say, well, you know, if you're if you're a person who's all about freedom, well, you, you don't care about minorities. Well, no, no. That, <laughs> right. That that's the thing that gets missed. Mm-hmm. Right. Those people who whose opinions will run afoul of the majority at some point. They need to as long as, uh, as there's one person whose rights are being violated. That's you, you have to stand up for that person uh, to have their own their own thoughts and beliefs. So, that, I mean, that was that was the crux of that. Point uh, Clearly, if the Law Society, an arm of the state, is telling you these have to be your values, and you have to say them, that's compelled speech, that's not even just um, telling you you can't say something, that is making you say something, and that's a whole other order of magnitude worse than, than even violating your right to speak, it's, they shouldn't be able to tell you what to say. Uh, this, these are the hallmarks of totalitarian societies, and we have seen this before. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that a lot of people appreciate this. We've lived in a, a bit of a golden age in, in, um, in the West for, for some, you know, mostly over the last number of decades, generations mm-hmm. even. And I don't think we'd necessarily um, appreciate just how fragile those freedoms are and how, if you look at a historical context, they're really just a blip on human development and, and evolution over time, uh, we've not had that kind of freedom in hmm. most societies since since we came together as uh, as communities um, of individuals. So, anyway, I you know I, I just those those are things that are worth fighting for all by themselves. Those principles, I believe.
0: I guess the uh, the other thing that sort of alarmed me and I think this was true of your statement of principles and it's also true of quite a few of the academic mandatory diversity statements that are uh, being put forward here in the United States, is that they are requiring activism. It's not just compelled thought or compelled speech, but there's a requirement in there that you actively work on behalf of these principles. And I have to say, uh, for me, I, I can't even totally always put a finger on why these things make me uncomfortable. It's just like, oh, wait a minute. I think something's kind of wrong about this. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I, I think probably more and more people are starting to feel that. I, to me, it feels almost like there's we're starting to get to a little bit of a tipping point. Mm-hmm. But when we feel that, it's because actually things have happened, uh, have gone so far, I'm not even sure we can pull back very easily. But but yes, it does require activism. Um, these the statement of principles required us to promote these things. Yes, that's so, what it was. That was the word promote. Yes, right. right. So that's not that's not just okay. I'm gonna um, you know just kind of uh, acknowledge that these are important values. No, I have to get out there and do something about it. Well, <laughs> yeah that that is that is uh, what what is expected. And they are. This is coming from an activist perspective. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether you know if if you. You might be, and they don't know, because this is all a blanket kind of thing, right? Like nobody cares. This is all group identity, collectivist sort of thinking. Nobody cares that you on an individual level um, can't walk past a homeless person without handing them a five. They don't care about that. You've got to say all this stuff. They don't want to sort of um, look at what you might do in your personal life to be a good person, to, to work on your own you know, values and perspectives and how you interact with people. and Oh, that's irrelevant. They don't care. They, they want you to tell this particular party line and, uh, you know, and, and and take it out into the world. I, that's exactly right. That's it. You've just exactly put
0: your finger on it. It's not that I object to these ideas or, or people may or may not. Right. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of us totally support the values that go behind these kind of efforts but we don't want an employer or in this case your law society to have the right to to strong arm you into that that the, now that to me that feels like a step too far right mm-hmm.
1: right right and but then let's also talk a little bit about what these what these words mean because they do sound nice and i think that part of the reason why they have been this has been so successful mm-hmm. in in taking over so many uh parts of society is, is that when people don't know what, what they're really pushing for, it's, it's, you know, the, the default is social justice because it sounds nice. They sound like nice words. And how could you possibly be opposed to those things? (laughs) You bad person. Yeah, right. But, uh, (laughs) but, you know, if you take the time and know, and a lot of people, People don't. I mean, you know, the average person is busy trying to raise their families and put food on the table, and and you know, get to the sporting events, and you know, wh- yep. whatever, whatever. Their their lives are busy. They're not spending time as I was, kind of figuring out what the heck is going on. What do these things really mean? And so once you once you see it, it's really hard to unsee it. Okay. So take the word diversity, for example. Listen, I think diversity is wonderful. I was always the kid in school who, when there was somebody who come from a, a different place, um, I I was the one who like welcome them into the circle and, and you know, mm-hmm. I also love learning other people's opinions on things. I um I, I like hearing different perspectives. I like having conversations. I find it harder to do in the last few years, to be honest, because everything has become so, um, so polarized that there's a hostility that underlies so much of those conversations now, which make it harder, I think, to be that, you know, to, to enjoy those exchanges of ideas in the same way. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about accepting different viewpoints and different perspectives and and, and recognizing that perhaps people from some identity group might have a unique perspective on something. Um, for one thing, that alone is a bit unfair to suggest that because you happen to check a particular box, that this must be your viewpoint. And I think uh, a lot of people who, who are, you know, um, an ethnic minority or um, a sexual minority uh, are, are assumed to be far left uh, activists. Well, guess what? They're not. Mm. But but those people are not welcomed into this concept of diversity. And and this is very evident. If you start seeing that, you, you see it everywhere. Uh, so, for example, as I as I mentioned, the woman who was uh, an Asian Canadian uh, immigrant. Um, didn't, she checked the boxes uh, that you would think would make her a diverse person, but they um, didn't like her politics, didn't like the fact that she was against a compelled statement of principles, and so she was vilified, mm-hmm. uh, even by the roundtable of diversity associations that, uh, whose mandate had been all along, oh, we've got to get more minority people at the table. Well, here we are putting her forward as the leader of the law society, and, and that's not good enough because she doesn't have the right politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so diversity doesn't really mean that we want to have a lot of opinions. What we really want to have are a whole bunch of uh, ideologues or activists who all share the same politics, and that's what we mean by diversity.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the hypocrisy and and irony of it, right? That when you start t- talking about issues of diversity, you can encounter people who are really not profoundly interested in diversity after all. They have mm-hmm. a certain idea of what that represents and it doesn't mean a whole bunch of people are expressing their own individual opinions. That That's not right. what they have right. in mind. And so what's really, I guess amusing, but also really tragic is that a lot of times, as you say, If your identity doesn't conform with what the expectation is, and you're vilified for that, it actually turns into racism. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, you're expected as a white person to have a certain thought. And if you don't have that thought, well, you know, then you're racist. And so if you're a black person, you're supposed to have this idea and that's also racist. So Mm -hmm.
1: uh, it's just, it's a mess that that's for sure. It is a mess. And, and it does come from a place and, and people might be saying, well, you know, come on, where, what does all this stuff even mean? Like, where's this coming from? How did everybody kind of get to thinking this way? Well, I'll tell you, um, if you haven't been to university in the last 20 years, you're not going to be aware of this perhaps, but there has been an increasing Teaching uh, and, in fact, monopolization now of the institutions with um, critical theory, which I only came to learn about myself in the last few years. I, I went to law school before a lot of the stuff did come out of law schools, um, especially the critical race theory. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it actually did. Um, uh, sort of in the late '80s, um, early '90s, and that was kind of when I was, you know, just finishing law school. It didn't ha- hadn't quite seeped into everything yet. It was coming. But I, so I got out before then, and so a lot of that stuff was kind of foreign to me. But critical theory, and, and, and there are other scholars who, who do it. I'm not a scholar, but scholars out there now kind of examining this who would do a much better job of explaining it than I. Um, but it essentially is a way of looking at the world through a power lens. And it's, it is destructive. It is not meant to make society greater. It is meant to tear it down and put in a new paradigm. It views every human interaction in all discourse through this very simplistic, binary, uh, zero-sum game of oppressor versus oppressed. You fit into one box or the other, and your individual circumstances be damned. And that's why, you know, you hear this this kind of talk like all all whites are racist, but Black people can't be, because they are... Uh, from the uh, oppressed group, and so you know, racism has been redefined from what those of us who who grew up, um, by the way, thinking that Martin Luther King Jr. was to be emulated and had the right idea and modeled our lives on that, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that is actually not the way to think about race now. You're supposed to. There's this idea now, which has been accepted by these people in starting in universities, but spreading out now, that it involves a power dynamic as well. So so because it is perceived that, or it's part of this dogma that whites have power, um, they can only be racist because racism is power. So that, that element has to be there. So, I mean, that's these are very, uh, very dangerous ideas, honestly. Um, the, the idea that came out of critical race theory was to, to try to upend the liberal uh, order, the ideals that Western civilization are founded on are all at stake as a result of this ideology, which has now been taught for enough years and enough probably a generation or two now that um, it isn't contained to the universities anymore it's, this is not campus craziness anymore this is now this is now part of the mainstream and uh, I mean we're just if we're just waking up to it now, it's probably almost too late. It's just, it's seeped in everywhere. So, so when I see it that way, it's very hard for me to look at those words and say, oh, that just means diversity. I, I'm all about, you know, if you've got a board of uh, directors and you want to, um, you know, you, you want to have people from different backgrounds I and mean, that's great, but that's not what this means. This is something different. This is very political. This is this is rooted in a sort of a postmodernism or neo-Marxism and that it has a goal of ultimately having an equality of outcome, too. And, that, and that's the other thing with the, ne- the next word on the list is equality. Well, do they, do they mean let's, let's give everybody an equal shot and, and have, you know, get rid of any barriers here so that everybody can have a, a, an equal chance at success? No, that's not what they mean. Uh, in fact, even on the Law Society's own page, they defined equality as equality of outcome, substantive equality. So that's what we're talking about, okay? So we're talking about getting everybody to the same place at the end of the day. Well, well, to do that, you have to do, you have to get rid of things like merit and, you know, hard work. Objective criteria. Objective criteria are all going out the window. There's a quote by Milton Friedman that says, a society that puts equality before freedom will get neither. And a society that puts freedom before equality will get a high degree of both when we focus on equality, in order to get to that point, you've got to stamp out a lot of things um, to put everybody, because people are different. Every individual is different. We're all good at some things, bad at others. I mean, the individual is is unique. Uh, None of us, if you've got two children, you know very well what this all means. No matter what opportunities you give, both of those kids, and in the same environment with the same parenting and the same politics around the dinner table, and whatever, you are not going to get two identically placed children at the end of it. Most likely, I mean, right. uh, it, it ha- <laughs> and add more children, and you, you know, the, the odds of that happening are even slimmer. But um, somehow, these people who want to remake our society think that we can we can get everybody to the same place. Well, that is not an easy task without upending all of the. The the notions of of a western liberal democracy. This is not possible. They're not reconcilable
0: And I guess for me again, it has this really heavy-handed feel Like if that's if that's your goal to try and get everybody to be the same At the end of whatever process we're looking at there has to be a bunch of manipulation and artificial interference that's going to have to take place in order to accomplish that. And so again, my gut just says, this doesn't feel like, mm. yeah, a free flowing natural outcome of things. This is intervention. Mm-hmm. And that just, yeah, that makes me uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> right. And so things that get in the way of um, of the, the, this sort of an agenda are statistics, facts, mm-hmm. reason, you know the, the the kinds of things, and, and so as a as a lawyer coming back into the profession as I as I was and looking at the report that underlied this whole initiative, I thought I I read it and I went I thought we were lawyers I thought we we were all about evidence what what happened to this profession in these years that I was gone that this passes for evidence it wasn't evidence it was it was anecdote it was clearly a manipulation and it was highly political and I thought. That's not evidence of anything, you know. Again, I I am not here to dismiss the fact that there are still racism in our society, or sexism, or other things. Those things uh, are unfortunate, and and we should work to rid ourselves of them. But but the things that are put forward are they just they don't make sense. If you're sitting there going, oh, you know, I, you look at this, and you think, oh, that doesn't make sense. Well, it's because it's not meant to make sense and it's not meant to be based on facts or evidence. It's meant to be political and it's meant to uh, give cover to, you know, sufficient cover that maybe nobody will notice as they sneak in something that means something entirely different. Uh, James Lindsay, who's a scholar on this issue and has been bringing a lot of this stuff to light.
0: Yeah, he ca- he came on the show. Oh, did so he? Oh, good. Yeah, last, oh. last fall, I think. Yeah. So he was mm-hmm. very helpful in helping us understand the difference between liberal democratic values and the social justice values and how this okay. is all, how that, that's all changed. Yeah. So the, uh, the, that was a lot of fun.
1: Oh, good. Well, then I don't feel like uh, as much pressure to kind of explain it because uh, you'll hear a much better explanation from Jim. But um, he's described it as a Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I think, a very apt description. So, so when you see it, like I said, you can't, it's hard to unsee it. And it is a power struggle is what it is. It's not just a benign effort to kind of um, bring more people into the fold and, and, uh, you know, kind of give a hand up, you know, to to people who who could use it, which I don't have an objection to, but this is something entirely different.
0: Yeah. And I'm going to take another run at this again, because I Mm -hmm. watched it when I was trying to explain it before. So what happens is, or at least as I see it and and chime in here, Lisa, is you get this distorted, when you're gonna try and interfere and have these uh, same outcomes for everybody, no matter who they are, the result of that is a racist intervention, right? So you're intervening on behalf of people because of their color. And that's where, you know, me, old fashioned me, I mean, my values were formulated in the 60s and 70s. My brain says, Hang on a second. That's what we used to object to—that that you would treat people differently because of the color of their skin. That's what racism means to me.
1: Mm-hmm. That's well. where you
0: can see. Right, I'm old and, and uh, yeah.
1: Well, well, same, same. I was actually quite shocked when um, when during this campaign uh, we were accused of having the ideology of colorblindness. Right, I thought thought ideology. I know, (laughs) I know what I grew up with, and I remember thinking, my parent, you know, I had to do better than my grandparents or whatever, right? Or you know, uh, and and I used to sort of look at them and say, oh, you know, I'm colorblind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Apparently, Mm -hmm. that's an ideology, and and that isn't not the post racial society that we're that we're striving for anymore. Uh, And I don't know how we get past all of this because you see, this is a this is one of those things where the job is never done because if you are you, there, there are some, it's such a Kafka trap that's built into the whole thing. Uh, you can never, you don't know what you're charged with and you, you can't defend yourself and you're guilty no matter what. Mm-hmm. And you either you either uh, oppose it and therefore you're showing your white fragility and therefore you, you're you evil that way. You know, you just have to accept that you are fundamentally uh, a racist person. And again, that doesn't, if you've traveled anywhere in the world and you see how other people interact, these are, these are human problems. Uh, they're not attributable to explicitly to one race. There are racist people out there. Uh, but, you know, my personal view is we were moving largely past that and we've now pulled ourselves back into very, very ugly race relations. And I'm not that there aren't problems to fix, but I'm more of a concrete, you know, how do we actually fix problems person than I don't, I don't get the sense that a lot of this uh, is meant to actually fix problems, I guess, is where I'm going with this. I think it's a vehicle for a different agenda, agenda entirely. And let me point this out. This is important. Uh, that was brought home to me when I read through this, all the background stuff behind this init- initiative. And I saw that right after having put this report together to say that the law society was systemic or, and, all, and, and everything was a part of it, all lawyers, all profession, the whole profession was systemically racist and that we needed to have these uh, important measures put in place to rectify this problem. And then on that same day that they voted that in, in the next breath, they voted to extend those same recommendations to all other equity-seeking groups. No report, no explanation of what the problem was, no definition of what those equity-seeking groups are. Uh, Who who are they and why do they need these, these initiatives? you know, presumably that includes women, LGBTQ, you know, people who have um, perhaps physical or m- mental disabilities of some sort. I see. You know, I don't know. I, uh, whoever organize, whoever managed to organize themselves, I guess, and say that they're an equity-seeking group uh, should be entitled to the benefit of representation at every level of the profession. That sent a very clear message to me, and I tried to explain it to other people and they weren't having it, but I, I – I think it is evidence uh, that this was not really intended to be an anti-racism measure at all. It was meant to be a an ideological measure. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think James would say flatly that it's about, about power. But I want to mm. go back to something that you said, and I know I have to start winding up here. This is an interesting topic. We could talk about this for a long time. But I want to go back to this idea of Whatever you do is never enough, because that's partly why I want to keep circling back to this issue, because that's what I see happening to people, really well-intentioned people who want to put their might behind this and say, yes, uh, we still do have racism. We want to get rid of that. And the more they get into the weeds and work on these issues, they discover no, it's hopeless for you. You can never do enough. You will never be able to say that you're not racist. You can never uh, be capable of stamping out racism. No, not you. And that's where I think people are starting to feel like, well, hang on a minute. This doesn't, this doesn't make common sense to me. Right. And that's why I think it's helpful for us to go back to, well, let's unwind what's happening here and go back principles about freedom of thought and what racism really is because I think that helps us understand why people have gotten in really in a no-win situation they just can't they can't get out of it Mm -hmm. I had this example here of my professor friend who tried you know very gently very quietly you know he was given one of these uh, mandatory diversity statements and he started studying it because he's a thoughtful guy And he started trying to raise a couple of points, really pretty minor, about how these statements might not be working quite the way they thought and that there might be some troubles. And and he said, you know, I was basically immediately shut down, like shouted down with long explanations about how he didn't understand intersectionality. and, And he said, well, that raised my concerns even more as well it should, right? If you can't even raise the, the smallest, tiniest question about this mandatory statement, something's wrong with that,
1: right? Right, right. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think people are starting to feel this very acutely now as we see people getting picked off who um, one by one who have run afoul of this ideology and are, you know, were thought or thought they were allies of it. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it eats its own, Um and, and that's not unusual. I, I always think it's important for us to have a historical context, too, and to see, uh, and I don't think many of us have this, I, I enjoyed when I was homeschooling with my kids to um, to go back and study history again in ways that I hadn't learned it when I was a kid myself in school. And, uh, and that was in a, a very chronological sort of fashion. And we watched the rise and fall of uh, empires and civilizations. And you start to develop a very strong appreciation for for how we can go bad as as a human species, um, yeah. and we see similar patterns in different coming out in different ways. You know, the we had the Puritans uh, who were who were uh, very um, you know condemning of anybody who thought differently, and of course burning witches at stake for perceived transgressions. Um, we had the um, Mao uh, and the Cultural Revolution in the uh, late '60s, where people, and in fact. Very similarly to today, the youth were militarized into promoting and pushing a new ideology. And uh, they would, uh, I think they started off probably berating professors, but eventually it turned into brutality and, and horrible deaths. You know, it can get out of hand when this totalitarian streak that seems to run consistently through the heart of man hmm. uh, is allowed to run unchecked. And that is something I think also studying history, you see what how resilient we are as humans, uh humans have gone through some horrific things and managed to you know pull ourselves up uh and and carry on as a as a species um and we forget that too i mean yeah bad things happen but and they happen to everybody by the way i mean every single person could go back in their family tree and find something horrific that happened to their people uh there's no question about that and probably the, somebody in your family tree has been an oppressor too i mean it's all, right. it's, all <laughs> yeah. it's all there right yep. um right. <laughs> Yeah, but but you know we 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 should have that historical context. We should understand too how how precious and valuable it is to have, as I said before, this where we had sort of arrived was this was this liberal notion of freedom. Uh, but it is just ever so precious and and, and very much on, on the way out if we don't start speaking up about this quickly and and, and pushing back hard um, against this stuff. And I and I know that's difficult when you see the cancellations going on. You have to understand if you're in the business world, if you're a leader in the business world, do not let this stuff into your organization. You will never uh, win at this. You, it will never be enough. It will never satisfy people. It, you, you know, you're you setting yourself up for, uh, for this Trojan horse to come in and make a mess of your organization. What you need to do is, uh, you know, just keep keep it out and uh, don't fire employees when they run afoul of of the, the, the mob. Uh, we can't be given into the mob all the time. The mob mm-hmm. is not your friend, and the mob will turn on you. And that's another historical example. when You look at the French Revolution. You know that there were the uh, the academic types that uh, you know pontificated about revolution um, and uh, in theory, and then there were the ones who took it all to a, a really ugly level. And then, by the way, turned on on the others, the, the the revolution always eats its children. I I guess is mm-hmm. is, is that the expression. Mm-hmm. Um, so bear in mind, if you're out there in in the working world, it is not easy now to stand up against the, the juggernaut. But if people don't start doing it, especially if you're in a position not to be canceled, you know, this is just going to wash over us. And it, and it, and we may have a we may not come back to a, a free society again for a very long time. I, I fear. Well, thank you
0: so much, Lisa, for spending an hour with us here to talk about something that's really complicated, but also really important. And so I so appreciate your time. And before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners, like any place they can follow your work or learn more about this or any resources or information you'd like them to have?
1: Well, you said you had Jim James Lindsay on your show uh, before, but I will point out his website, his newdiscourses.com, which explains a lot of this, this stuff. And it gives you some some definitions. He's got something, uh, what does he call it, the wokeism uh, dictionary. Yeah. So you can start to figure out what, what do these terms really mean? So if you're interested in anything I've said today, um, he's more of a source on that than, than I am. Um, I'm just, I'm the practical person who tried to to, to pull people, people together and, and, and get an outcome that was, that was favorable. And I, I, I'm happy to encourage anybody else to do so and to give you some tips and, and, uh, and so on too. So please do reach out. You can find me on Twitter at LDBildy, B-I-L-D-Y. Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk to anybody about uh, practical solutions to, um, to pushing back. So that's probably the best place to find me.
0: Great. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes, airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com. And that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreetguide.com D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care, and let's talk again soon.